0: Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, who I presume are not smoldering in the corner of the quad like the leaves outside of Charles' bedroom.
1: Whoa, that was... (laughs) Or maybe you are. Haunting and evocative
2: <laughs> I wish I was smoldering like the leaves outside of Charles I would go, totally go for that
1: you smoldering, know what's funny is yesterday evocative. I was smoldering like the leaves outside the quad and then I had to kind of like go to the gym so I had to stop but I was yesterday I'm just not right now
0: oh okay all right yeah all right well that makes sense yeah I like that smoldering what did you say evocative and what
1: uh i can't even remember haunting
0: and evocative haunting kind of like and this,
1: evocative. kind of like this chapter we're about to talk about yeah that's a perfect description of chapter five
0: so yeah we are going to talk just about chapter five for a couple of reasons one because we are actually only recording two days after our last recording date uh, and secondly, just because it's a long chapter But I think what we're going to be doing Is probably focusing on just a chapter at a time The rest of the way through this book To give ourselves um, some room to burrow deeply mm. um, We don't want to bite off more than we can chew Either time-wise, schedule-wise But also just um, We want to be able to give the book you know, Each chapter its due attention uh, It's a really rich, rich book And it's, we don't want to skip over more than, we, more than we must So to speak
1: so and we're going to talk like the about the book the book seems to pivot in this chapter. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's a, that's actually what I was going to say is we get it's, it's the beginning of the rest of the of the story sort of. Yeah. We're kind of through this. I know there's an actual prologue, but the first four chapters in a way seem like set up like like a prologue material um, for the rest of the story and uh, there's a lot of themes being set up in those first four chapters that kind of uh, b- begin to um you know Whatever seeds were planted begin to, you know, begin to grow and flower in this chapter, I think. And
2: and that's one of the things I'm talking about when I say that it reads like a Victorian novel. You know, this sort of long, slow lead up. I mean, think about it. You know, we're at chapter five and now we feel like we're getting somewhere.
1: yeah
0: right well i right. i you know I don't know that i think i think why the one of the reasons it feels like that is because we're getting to we're beginning to get to a different place than we thought like the novel begins to change in right. a lot of ways mm-hmm. and the first it it becomes less about you know we we think we're going to get this book about it's about the adventures of Sebastian and charles right 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 and now and now all of a sudden we get this much more moody uh haunting as as you know to borrow Tim's word there um chapter that sets up something very different than I think it might have we might have felt like we were going to get.
2: And uh, I love how it's this whole like the carefree days of youth are kind of behind us and they're they're both dealing with the fact in different ways that, that that's that's behind them and you get the sense as the other characters talk that this is just a normal part of growing up and this is the college experience and this is what young men do. They go and they make a mess of things their freshman year and then they sort of, you know, get their heads on straight and finish up and, and just thinking about um, where we are now culturally uh, even when I was in college I still feel like that was it you kind of went and sowed a few wild oats but by the end of it you know I, I remember all of my friends just getting to this point where it was like well, we're too old to party and we were like 21 you know what I'm talking about like it just you got tired <laughs> yeah. of it and you were just ready to be a grown up yeah. Uh, But it just seems to me that we have prolonged this. College is no longer that place where we kind of wake up and say, I'm ready to be a grown-up. It almost is like we've just prolonged it to where now it's like, maybe when I get to my 30s, I'll have this. My carefree youth is behind me. It's just an observation. I don't have anything to add to that.
0: Well, before we go any further anyway, we should probably say thank you to some sponsors, some people who are making this show popular. Of course, we have uh, the sponsorship from our friends over at Classical Academic Press who are behind the A Academy. And uh, that is related to you, Tim. You are giving some – you're going to be uh, leading. I don't know, giving, leading, presenting, teaching. Teaching is probably the word we should go with. Teaching. <laughs> teaching Teaching
2: uh, is probably the word we should go with if
0: you go with if you keep saying a lot of words like a just thesaurus style you're eventually you're gonna stumble upon the obvious one yeah so i just did it in front of thousands of of people (laughs) who are listening so um if that says anything about the way that i write then it's terrifying um but if you have a ninth or 12th grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar-style great books course while earning two high school credits, then the Skolay Academy might be great for you, especially the classes that are taught by Tim McIntosh. Uh, Tim is offering four different high school great books courses live online next school year. So if you would like your high school students to have deep engagement with the great books and develop a love for the classics under the tutelage of a, of a professor as accomplished and eloquent, and I don't know. If I keep saying words, I'm going to come upon the perfect one. Uh,
2: a haunting, you know? and yeah, haunting and
1: evocative
0: great book experience. Yeah. If you're looking for a haunting and evocative great book experience for your children, then maybe check out SkolaAcademy.com <laughs> and look up Tim's classes. Um, so yeah, thanks to Classical Academic Press and A Academy for uh, sponsoring this summer, sponsoring Close Reads this summer. But the Circe Podcast Network is also brought to you This month, during the month of June, by our friends over at the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Of course, you probably know a little bit about them. Andrew Poudoua is a good friend of ours, and he will be speaking, giving a keynote talk at our conference in Austin this summer. Um, But IEW equips teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Uh, at IEW, it is their privilege to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. So please do go check out IEW at IEW.com. Check out their uh, their poetry me- memorization program, which um, they're really excited about. And Andrew's, Andrew Pudwell is going to be talking about poetry and memorization and the benefits of all that at our conference, which, appropriately enough, is themed a contemplation of memory. So he seemed like a, one of the you know the appropriate people to speak at such a conference given his studies on the topic so thanks to IEW for sponsoring as well
1: his talk on um memory that he gave at the end of the last Circe conference it wasn't a keynote it was kind of one of the breakouts oh it was it was exceptional I'm really looking forward to his keynote
0: I think he's giving a similar talk or at least along that in that same vein you know um his keynote on, on uh, Friday, I think Friday, fr- the Friday morning of the conference, I believe.
1: That's exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing that.
2: David, do you also want to mention my upcoming webinar that I've got going on at the uh, Searcy Institute?
1: Oh, yeah. I want to hear about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, you beat me to it. Oh, I'm um,
2: sorry.
0: <laughs> but if you want to take over, I can just pass the mic over. You can... You can take over this part. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, go ahead. Tell us about that. It's we're, We started a new series of monthly uh, webinars um, on how to teach fairy tales. So it's kind of like a close reads thing, but it's a, it's a shorter story. You know, we did one on Cinderella. You're doing which one?
2: Snow White.
0: Snow White. We're going to do Sleeping Beauty. We're going to do all these classic fairy tales, and we're going to look at, you know, h- how to teach them, how to approach them, the questions to ask, how to op- unpack them for kids, all that kind of stuff. So – can you give us a preview of what you're going to be doing and can you tell us um more about why you chose that particular story or did you, were you given it
2: <laughs> no i wasn't given it i was t- i chose it um so this is going to be on june 28th and i'm really excited about it because i think people have mostly figured out that fairy tales and those ki- myths and fairy tales and folk tales uh that's that's a uh, A great, great love of mine. And um, so we will be talking about uh, Snow White, we'll be talking about how to read a fairy tale in general, like what are they and how do you make sense of them. We're going to talk about the gospel as fairy tale, which I think is a real key to understanding all stories. Uh, We'll be looking at the relationship between classical mythology and fairy tales. And I'm going to be talking um, about how not to teach a fairy tale as well because uh whenever i talk about fairy tales and people get really excited with with my analysis uh, that question inevitably comes up do i teach it like this to my children so that so we'll be we'll be wrestling with all of that and i think people are going to be really excited to discover the depths in snow white
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's a lot yep. to it
0: yeah the, and and it's so much more than the 1930s Disney movie here. I think there was a '30s, although even that was much better than I think some people give it credit for. Personally,
2: you know that uh, Tolkien and Lewis went to the movies to see the Disney version of Sleeping Beauty when it came out.
0: Uh, I did. I know.
2: Yes. Really. And they hated it.
0: <laughs> Not yeah. Yeah.
2: Surprisingly. They did.
0: But it might have been because the pictures were moving. I can't.
2: Oh, oh, no, they both said something <laughs> to the effect of, you know, well, I could appreciate the technical merit that went into the production, but it's not a fairy tale. Tolkien in particular was extremely mm. disturbed by the buffoonishness of the dwarfs, as you can imagine.
0: Uh, yeah, that's actually my biggest problem with it as well.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, they, they felt like... Uh, I mean, these are men who've devoted themselves to myth and fairy tales and, and fairy stories in general, and, and, and they just didn't like the Disneyfication of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> well. But
2: just the thought <laughs> of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien standing in line at the movies to watch this just tickles me beyond anything I can say.
1: Uh, I'd like extra butter, and uh, do you have any of those... Uh, Jolly Ranchers that no, I could buy. No, you in
2: know, more... like, C.S. Lewis is totally trying For... to sneak a pint into this children's movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably like, so, just right?
2: Just be No one will notice.
0: <laughs> they, my guess is they probably didn't have to sneak them in.
2: Probably not. Um. <laughs>
0: um, well, speaking of avoiding Disneyfication, back to Brideshead Revisited. Um, we're chapter five. So one thing I'd like to do before we dive in too far is kind of get a uh hold of the cast of characters that we have run into uh in these first five chapters so let's see if we can kind of account for the main characters we obviously have uh, charles Ryder and sebastian flight there are there are protagonists um tim can you kind of break down uh his how sebastian's family what what all the different relationships are there for us
1: okay so the it probably the most important character going forward is Lady Marchmaid, the mother of uh Sebastian. she is a devout Catholic she has divorced her husband or she and her husband went through a divorce. I don't know that she divorced her husband um uh, there's also Lord Marchmaid, who is the kind of absent father who has moved to it's Venice, right? He's in Venice. Um, and there is also, of course, Bridey, the Earl of Brideshead, who is the elder brother of Sebastian and, excuse me, uh, Julia is the sister of Sebastian. Those are our main characters within the Brideshead family tree. I feel like I I oh and we haven't really seen much of him but uh Julia's husband
2: No, she's not married. Rex.
1: No, but she will be. Isn't it doesn't she marry Rex? Well, yeah, she does. Yeah. So Rex is Spoiler,
2: oh, I totally didn't Rex. remember that. That was her beau.
1: Oh, really? You didn't remember that? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah.
0: I told
2: you I remember that. No, that like becomes something.
0: that becomes, you know, the the one of the central I don't want to say conflicts, but relationships of the whole story. You know, yes. it's interesting. I was thinking while I was reading this chapter. I've read this a couple times. It's been it's been a few years though. So I mean, like five years, um, <clears throat> at least. I can't remember exactly how many. But I realized that the character who I think of the most is not Sebastian or Charles, but when I think about this book, I think about Julia hmm. by far would, the most. Why do you think that is, David? I don't know exactly. Um, uh, and I and I have some ideas, but I don't want to say them now because I, th- there'll be reasons that show up later. Right. Yes. She becomes a, she becomes a much more crucial character, a central character. Yes. In the second half of the book, so I don't want to say anything now, but I find her uh, the most one of the most um, uh, just intriguing, uh, complex characters in the book. Um, so I you know I I like you know I like i like how he she gets introduced a bit at a time like there's this mystery about her sebastian's just all out there but the rest of the family is there's this mystery about them like uh bride's his older brother is like you know there's a, something archetypal about him but we only get him mm-hmm. in bits and pieces mm-hmm. um and then julia is like first he sees her when he comes to visit sebastian the one that one time but he only sees her for like a fleeting moment you know and then he meets her a couple more times here and there and like gets to know her a little bit more at a time. But the whole family is like there's this slow reveal about them which keeps them yes. seeming mysterious for, yes. the, re- for the reader, I, which I think is really, really interesting, really well done by by Wah.
1: And it's kind of fulfilling this worry that Sebastian has earlier on in the book that his family is going to steal Charles away from him. And Sebastian is maybe the primary character of the book next to Charles at the beginning, as he recedes, the family kind of steps to the fore and they kind of like kind of fill the, fill his absence in Charles's world.
0: Hmm. And of course that fear kind of, I don't want to say that it is, that it is fulfilled or it's met or whatever, but it does come into play again in this chapter five because, you know, as Sebastian's despondency is tied to his, feeling that they're stealing him, stealing Charles away from him. Whether or not that's actually true is up for debate.
1: Angelina, I don't want to derail the cast of characters, David, maybe we can go on with that, but I'm curious because Angelina said that she's having a hard time remembering this book, and for me also, it's my second time reading it, I'm having such a hard time recalling the plot. It seems really, really new on second read, and I wonder... Is there a reason why it's it's well, not coming to memory? I
2: mean, I thought it was just time. It's been over 20 years since I've read it. But I remember almost nothing. Almost nothing. I didn't well, remember that Julia married Rex. I do not remember how the book ends.
0: Hmm. What is the I remember little
2: plot? snippets, though.
1: <laughs> what is what, David? What is the plot, though?
2: Well, I, mean, I see, yeah.
1: That's, to me, the reason why we're having such a hard time remembering is that the plot is so... It is not a plot book. It is a character book. Right. And I remember the characters, but I don't remember any of. Well,
2: that's true of me like, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've actually been thinking about this idea a lot. That great, the greatest works of literature, and to a certain extent, other other art, other narrative-based art forms like movies or whatever, uh, theater, uh, they don't necessarily. It doesn't really matter what happens. They create like moments that we remember. There's yes. something haunting and evocative about them, right? That. Uh, that they that, that kind of linger with us that and that's one of the things that is evidence of a of the greatest works um i don't know if you guys know uh who dennis johnson is um, oh
1: he he just died
0: yeah he just died yes. last week um and he is a uh sort of renowned in certain circles you know modern writer he wrote a book called tree of smoke about vietnam which is many consider to be the the best vietnam novel um it's and it's very violent as you'd expect um but it's the kind of book that, like, when I was studying fiction writing in college, that, you know, it's the kind of book that they make you read. I read it in yeah. independent study. And I don't remember anything about it. I, don't, I remember very little about the actual plot. I remember some sort of, like, cursory level, like, theme things. But what I remember the most is certain moments. Like, there's this moment, the book begins with this scene in the jungle where this young soldier is watching a monkey, like, kill another creature or something and then get shot or something to that effect. And it's violent and gory, and it's like, clearly a metaphor for everything else that's going to come in the book but what i remember the most is just that tone that mood and i think that even in in a book like this where the plot is you know things are happening but it's not the most important thing right it's that tone and that mood and what it evokes that is that is most memorable
1: david i gotta weigh in just very briefly on dennis johnson my friend Mm -hmm. rick levine who Mm -hmm. has wonderful taste in literature. He's a writer for the Weekly here in Eugene. He is a, he, he loves Dennis Johnson, and he says he would pass out his short story, his book of short stories, Jesus's Son. Yeah, he said, yeah. I would pass it out with the Bible. It's like mandatory reading for 21st century. Huh. Um, and he told me that Dennis Johnson converted to Christianity very late in his life. Hmm. Which I, I can, I don't know, know that I knew set. that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know that it's true, but Rick was pretty confident about it when he asserted it.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, hmm. I mean, I don't even know Rick, but Rick said that. I feel like with authority. I, that's totally how I roll, and <laughs> that's, that's good with me. Um, but I, I love, true, I love what you said, David, and I think it's totally true, um, and, and it fits in with a lot of the personal research I've done about the development of story and narrative and uh, you know, the whole idea that you have to have some original plot that carries the story through and that that's what draws us to the story is this you know is this what's going to happen next kind of feeling it's such a modern and new idea, historically speaking, you know, it's just, that's just not how storytelling was historically for the vast majority of human experience, you know. Homer is working within well-established myths. Um, Shakespeare has no original um, plot lines, you know, except for The Tempest. Um, The medieval, same thing. It's more about what are you going to do with these characters? What moments are you going to give us? Uh, You know, what new spin are you putting on an old on an old story, what, what, what are you bringing to the forefront? What's gonna be your particular emphasis? Um, what's gonna be your innovation to this well-established story? Um, and, and so I think that you saying that we're still reading modern books, which are supposed to be p- plot heavy, right? The emphasis is supposed to be on that. If we're still reading them in this old way, which I think you're right, that's a, that's a fascinating idea about how human beings relate to stories and that it's much more about characters and moments.
1: Hmm. Now, Angelina, I might quibble a little bit with what you just said. Okay. I mean, you as well as anyone know, like Aristotle's Poetics is it may not, it was not a book about novels. It was a book about play. So maybe we need to kind of like curtail its influence and keep it outside of novels. But Aristotle's Poetics for a tragedy is a, is a plot story even more than it's a character story. And Aristotle would say, I mean, there's there's not a real divorce between the two. But it seems like even, even as early as Aristotle, there's a pretty strong emphasis on the plot being the primary vehicle of the meaning of the story.
2: I don't know that... I think a lot of this has to do with how we're defining things. I'm talking primarily in um whether or not you're 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 working within an established story or whether or not you're inventing something something new. I mean, there always is an element of suspense and what's going to happen next. I mean, that's never entirely missing. I mean, part of the reason that these authors are right. putting twists on things and innovations. I mean, there is a certain suspense that comes from that, but um it's one of the reasons that we can read these stories again and again is that it the enjoyment ultimately whatever it is we're getting from these stories is not so closely related to what happens next that when you get to the end of that you can't you can't ever go back to it because you know what would the pleasure in that be which you know do, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that does make sense. That yeah. does make sense.
2: Yeah, I I mean I'm not suggesting that plot is not important. It it is. I'm ex- I'm suggesting something about um You know so so homer the reason that they invoke the muse right is that they're saying this story does not originate with me i did not make this up right this is this is Mm. something that's being given to me i'm the receiver of it and i'm now passing it on to you in the middle ages they did the exact same thing they start the stories off not with an invocation of the muse but with saying i've heard this story you've probably heard this story this story has been written down but again the idea is that they're rooting the story outside of themselves this changes when you get to the novel, hence the name novel, meaning new, and now it's a Mm. new story that's never been told before and that originates in me. And that's closely related to the romantic idea of of the role of the poet and how he's giving you this truth. But the truth now comes from within me, not from outside me. So those are the distinctions I'm sort of working with here, very sloppily in this conversation.
1: Like like James Joyce writes near the end of of the artist as a young man, I will reforge the conscience of my race within the smithy within the smithy of my soul. Or I will reforge the conscience of my people. Anyway,
0: yeah.
1: a very romantic right. notion. I from the smithy, the bellows, the anvil within me, I will craft a kind of new narrative. And that's that's very it's funny coming from someone like Joyce, who was um who borrowed the you know, one of the world's famous plots sure. to make his most famous book, but still there is this notion of like the romantic self will triumph. It's not it's not we allude to the past in our writing, but really the work of the artist is to forge something yes. novel, to forge something yes, new. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, point point well absolutely. made. Absolutely.
0: Um <clears throat> you know, uh you know who Matthew Weiner is? Either no. of you
2: Wait no, he he's is that the, critic, right? The Mad Men critic.
0: Well, he no, he's the creator of Mad, creator Mad Men.
2: Creator of Mad Men. Okay, sorry. And
0: he he works on some other shows too. But so he yeah, so he is the um, the critic you're thinking of is named Matt Matt Zoller Seitz. Yes. But the um, the 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 creator of Mad Men, he was asked about why they made certain choices throughout the the run of their show, and and you know, TV for a long time has kind of been. Um, especially as serialized shows came along where, you know, one episode would lead into the next, which was, of course, that was something that wasn't as big in, early on in, in the history of TV. But as that kind of tech got so cold, people began to have these complex plots and it was all about one thing leading to the next. And so he didn't really do that. And and sometimes people would say, well, it feels like you're kind of being repetitive, like the characters keep doing the same things or didn't we just rehash this same idea or something like that? And he said, well, you know, that's how more that's more like how our lives are our lives are rarely like you know a beginning a middle and end <laughs> the way i mean they are but they don't you know right. the, our lives aren't a c- series of plots they're a series mm-hmm. of moments that that you know feed into one another and affect the next moment and all that but you know rising action and falling action is is um our, our actual lives are a lot more complex than that usually and so he talked about how when he was making that show, for him it was about trying to create moments that felt true to life, that he, was, he felt he was following characters. He wasn't trying to like fit characters into a plot, he was saying, these are the characters that I'm getting to know, and this is where they're taking us, and, and everything that I do, every bit of the world that I create around them, has to be, help, help us get to know those characters and allow, allow us to follow them, rather than telling them, you know, this is where you're going to go. Um, yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons why a show like that has as many fans as it does. And again, we don't really think about the, the plot of a show like that or, or a lot of movies right. like that. We think yeah. about the moments we think about like these evocative, often evocative and haunting moments. Right. I mean, I, I, those were good. That's a, those were good, uh, word choices there, Tim. And you didn't even have to go through a list <laughs> of them. You just said them right off the top of your, <laughs> um, you're sitting there with a thesaurus, though.
1: It's all right. It's true, That's true. Thumbing through my thesaurus. Not, the same sort of thing that you just described happening in Mad Men happens in one of my favorite shows, The Wire. Viewer yeah, discretion yeah, sure. is advised. Yeah, for both um, those shows. Probably. In The Wire, they, they develop some of the most riveting characters I've ever seen on a screen. Stringer Bell. Yeah, absolutely. It's, oh, my goodness. What a character. And they kill him. They kill him in season two of five. Hey, you You're just on a they...
2: spoiler roll today, man. I know.
1: Actually, you know what, David? I'm just assuming that like our readers are not, or our listeners are not going to watch The Wire. I shouldn't assume that. Wow. It's just, <laughs> don't, they don't need, the need way, to watch it with their kids.
0: I don't think it's season two that they kill Stringer. Oh, I thought it was season two. I think it's later when it's they It's early. What, early, what but... even
2: worse than a spoiler? A wrong spoiler.
0: I mean, you're just <laughs> killing TV over here. No they really do kill they kill key characters like at any given time i mean oh
1: yeah, yeah david not... maybe you should cut that out now i feel kind of bad because like like...
2: everyone who dies in order on game of thrones just go for it
1: oh okay did you know that I don't... i've never <laughs> seen not have I, I know a I lot of did you hear
0: it. did you hear that the throne gets killed <laughs> what
2: that explains um, a lot
0: <laughs> that's why there's a game i don't i don't know um <laughs> It's true though. The wire is like that, and a lot of—I mean—a lot of the greatest films of all time, like, have very little to do with the actual plot, like what mm. happens, so much as uh, why it happens and how it happens. Um, but let's let's jump over to to this chapter. There's a lot to talk about in this chapter, but I think there's a couple themes in particular that we should focus in on. Do um. Do either of you have a passage that really stood out in this chapter? That's uh, in chapters that are this long. I figure let's you know take a couple passages that we really love and see if we can just kind of follow them where they take us. You know, to keeping keeping with the theme of the last ten minutes conversation.
1: David, I've got a passage, but my passage occurs relatively late in the chapter, and it feels like it's almost the culmination of the chapter. So, I wonder Andrew, if if either of you have something that happens a little bit earlier. My passage begins on page 138 and goes through 140.
0: Is it the Lady Marchmain conversation?
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's um it's not the conversation with Lady Marchmain, but it's Charles's thoughts on reading the book that Lady oh, Marchmain gave. Oh, her. yeah,
2: that was good. I marked up that one too. That's a good one. I want to talk about yeah. that for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, But
1: it might be good to do something earlier. I right, have well, got to something a, a little earlier.
2: When um, on one twenty-seven in my book, and I think we have the same page numbers, um, David. Um, this is when uh, Charles is is reflecting on the religion and the family, and that it doesn't seem to be having a, a very strong effect on him. And he's having a conversation with Lady Marchmain, uh, which uh, it's just uh, she's speaking my language, y'all. Scraps of conversation. What is okay? Start let's with? start with on one twenty-six. Scraps of conversation. Okay. Um,
0: This is right after he has said religion predominated in the house. He's there for Christmas. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That's how it starts. Religion predominated the house, not only in its practices, the daily mass and rosary, morning and evening in the chapel, but in all its intercourse. We must make a Catholic of Charles, Lady is saying. Okay, so skipping down then. Um, Scraps of conversation come back to me with the memory of her room. I remember her saying, when I was a girl, we were comparatively poor, but still much richer than most of the world. And when I married, I became very rich. It used to worry me, and I thought it nothing to have so many beautiful things when others had nothing. I'm sorry, I thought it wrong. I thought it wrong to have so many beautiful things when others had nothing. Now I realize that it is possible for the rich to sin by coveting the privileges of the poor. The poor have always been the favorites of God and his saints. But I believe that it is one of the special achievements of grace to sanctify the whole of life, riches included. Wealth in pagan Rome was necessarily something cruel. It's not any more. I said something about a camel and the eye of a needle, and she rose happily to the point. But of course, she said, it's very unexpected for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But the gospel is simply a catalog of unexpected things. It's not to be expected that an ox and an ass should worship at the crib. Animals are always doing the oddest things in the lives of the saints. It's all part of the poetry, the Alice in Wonderland side religion. But I was as untouched by her faith as I was by her charm, or rather, I was touched by both alike. I had no mind then for anything except Sebastian, and I saw him already as being threatened, though I did not yet know how black was the threat. His constant despairing prayer was to be let alone. By the blue waters and rustling palm of his own mind he was happy and harmless as a Polynesian. Only when the big ship dropped anchor beyond the coral reef, and the cutter beached in the lagoon, and up the golden slope that had never known the print of a boot, there trod the grim invasion of a trader, administrator, missionary, and tourist. Only then was it time to disinter the archaic weapons of the tribe and sound the drums in the hills, or more easily to turn from the sunlit door and lie alone in the darkness where the impotent, painted deities paraded the walls in vain and coughed his heart out among the rum bottles. And since Sebastian counted among the intruders his own conscience and all claims of human affection, his days in Arcadia were numbered. Oh, I really like that whole thing.
0: Yeah, when I was reading that, I was fascinated by the way he goes. I'm not, not surprised, mind you, just fascinated by the way he goes from this kind of like, philosophical idea and like getting kind of getting, trying to get in Sebastian's head and all that. But then he does that by this really rich metaphor. He, he shows like he gives us a picture that reveals what he's trying to explain in a way that just saying it or saying it, you know, in regular old words, you know, (laughs) could never do Um, that. And, and it's a really kind of strange metaphor. It like it feels, it doesn't feel of a kind, like akin with the rest of the book or the place they're in and all that. It's like this very, um, uh, foreign exotic thing that he's describing. And it's kind of wild at the same time. Like, you know, it just gives you so much insight into what, into who Sebastian is, um, beyond just what's going on in his head, but to, to who he is. mm mm-hmm. And, and like what, and like how we can think about him, like represents him. And
2: I want to make sure too. Help
0: me,
1: you guys. What metaphor? What metaphor are you guys talking about? Well,
2: it almost is like he's one of these, like you know, untouched native islanders, and we're about to intrude
0: okay,
1: yeah. upon that. Mindset. Yeah, it's like an epic simile, actually. Either as it's it's what's hard about this passage for me, and I think it's beautiful. But what's hard about it is it's Charles reflecting back. On these scraps of conversation that came back to him, um, mainly with his conversation with Lady Marchmaid And he's also reflecting back on. It's hard to position if this is Charles's um, kind of like older self reflecting back on how he views Catholicism's threat to Sebastian, or if it's Charles in that moment. Imagining what Catholicism's threat to Sebastian is. Do you understand what I'm? Right. What I'm trying to get at? I
2: just assume everything is older, Charles. You know, I had no mind then. You know the way he talks.
1: Yeah. But but it's hard for me. Help me, you guys. It's hard for me to reconcile that vision of Catholicism because it's it's an imperialistic vision. It's imp, like it's threatening. It's encroaching which, which, which upon which Sebastian's. Vision? The vision of... um,
2: I did not read it as religion being the threat to Sebastian, though.
1: Let me read the paragraph that I'm talking about, just to make sure we're on the same page. But I was as untouched by her faith as I was by her charm, or rather, I was touched by both alike. I had no mind then for anything except Sebastian, and I saw him as already being threatened, though I did not yet know how black was the threat. I'm taking that threat... That threat is either... I take it to be her...
2: Fate. oh see i did not read it that way at all
1: how do you read like it like
2: life growing up everything his innocence is being threatened by just the weight of everything but you can't huh. stay in that place
0: so you so you know you said earlier something about like the the whole like getting older and you can't party anymore and the weight of getting of growing up and all that so that's where you that's where you Read his despair coming from. No, I
2: think his the way despair of growing is extremely complicated. I, I think it's more than just growing. I think he's got a lot of issues with his family. Um.
0: What do you guys make of the whole the whole question about the, the the whether he is um how does he put it? He says that this the scientists say there's something chemical wrong oh, with him. Oh, that was also a
2: great passage. And he, and he hmm. says
0: I don't think there was anything chemical wrong with him. Um, d- do, do, is that is that Charles and Wa asking us to dismiss the you know any kind of like oh he has this mental issue or whatever like are we is that basically just him telling us don't even think about that
1: yeah I that's the way I read I think it he's having a spiritual like, issue. It has to be addressed I agree totally agree. he doesn't want he doesn't want us
0: coming to it with like our Sigmund Freud on the side or like right. RR RR that, again, echoing Flannery O'Connor
2: work. right don't give this some psychoanalytical reading this is a spiritual, yeah, or
0: barrier, Twain, yeah, right,
2: right. You see, and uh, and of course, what stood out for me was again this this idea that Lady Marchmain brings forth, just rejecting this modern view of religion, right? Because she's talking about this is the poetry of religion, this is the Alice in Wonderland side of religion,
0: which goes back to what we talked right. about last time—the idea of like the, of that aesthetic theology that that as and Tim the enchantment, it, the of idea, it, uh, loving something for it being lovely, and the
2: enchantment of it, and that yeah. it's. it's She says, essentially, the faith is a paradox, and we should expect to see paradoxes, you know? The lion and the lamb lying down. There's a paradox at the heart of Mm -hmm. you die to live, which that's always been what's fascinated me about religion, is the paradox at the heart of it.
0: I like that you use the word enchanted, because in a sense, what Edward, I mean, what Charles could have said there is, but I was, you know, he says I was untouched by her by her faith and her, as and her charms and mm-hmm. like that it could have been something like you know i was unconvinced um, right. well but uh, what's what's a word that goes more with with enchanted with oh. enchantment um like if you think in terms of magic or something like that i was on i mean i was unenchanted i guess there was a word i had in my head and i lost wow. it and if i keep talking eventually maybe it'll come back <laughs> <laughs> um but i was thinking you know oh like a, there's a spell like he hasn't like the the, there's been you know he the spell doesn't ring true for him like he he's not been cast by that spell um yet yet and i think one of the things about the book is that in a way sebastian that spell does linger over him and he's yes the, the despair is is you know that in a sense he both wants that's to you know he wants to feel that that enchantment he wants but he, at the same time, he doesn't. And so there's he doesn't that also inner at the turmoil same time. Yeah, absolutely. And so absolutely. There's, the, there's that question of Sebastian reconciling those two poles within himself, which of course are, are, those are universal things, right, to some degree or another. But then, and then there's Charles, you know, there's always, there's the question alongside that that kind of runs parallel with that of whether Charles, you know, what, what will cause Charles, if anything, to also be enchanted? Like, what is it that's going to finally capture his imagination? Because Mm -hmm. the reason, as we talked about last week, the reason has not been captured. He's not convinced. But what's going to capture his imagination? Because Sebastian's imagination is captured. And in some ways, it leads to the despair.
2: Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because it kind of rips him in half. Yes.
2: But, you yeah, know, that image, yeah. I was just going to say this, this image of Sebastian being torn in two, it, it's been going through all these chapters. I mean, he's a child of divorce. Right, and his mother right. and his father yep. represent great, yeah. two very different worlds. And, and even his father saying, mm-hmm. you know, that, or it was it Kara who says, you know, he, he sort of hates Sebastian because he's his mother's son. and And, and, and then, you know. You feel the same thing with with Lady Marchmain saying, well, I wish I had been able to direct his education, but as well of course his father directed his his education so you know there's a there's a real sense here in which Sebastian is sort of the battlefield of his parents, plus symbolically they yeah. represent mm-hmm. two very different worlds you know um he's a Catholic like his mother, but he's a drunkard like his father I mean all of this tension about who yeah. is he just uh, and he's young, and, he, and, 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 and also you got the whole post-war angst that everybody's going through about what does it mean to be a man mm-hmm. in this new modern world. And mm-hmm.
0: Which, of course, we'll talk about in the passage right, that Tim right. brought up. You yeah. know, it's, it's interesting that he then puts Charles in that same, those same shoes, in a sense, because he pits Charles between himself yes. and his family, and like, it's like yeah. Charles is then subsequently being torn as well
1: absolutely right
0: yeah i mean anytime you have juxtapositions or you and know the fact like that sebastian wants get, to
2: retreat from the battlefield of his own family by going to charles's family is also very interesting each of mm-hmm. them finds some kind of solace in course, the other person's family
0: and of course charles's father seems to like sebastian far more yes. than he likes charles he asks after him every time he sees him it's like is he not coming back that's too yes. bad you do whatever right. you want. No, nope. Sebastian's on not
2: a pawn in that relationship. You know, in that dynamic, but you kind of, you kind of feel like Charles is a little bit of a pawn in in the March main household. Yeah.
1: What do you guys make of the fact that the father likes having Sebastian around? That Charles's father likes having Sebastian around. Why does he like? Is it just kind of like a, a, a kind of like a relational punishment against Charles? Like I prefer your friend to you. Or is it more complex than that?
0: Maybe he thinks Charles is boring. I mean, I, I mean, don't really mean that as a, I mean that half jokingly, but maybe he kind of just, I don't know. He doesn't get him maybe. in other words. Like, I don't mean boring yeah. like he just thinks he's a boring person. He just doesn't well, get yeah, him. Well, yeah, I was can't. actually
2: thinking the same thing. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves, how we are different people around different friends. And so maybe Sebastian mm-hmm. being there has brought something out in Charles that just makes the whole thing easier for his dad.
1: Maybe so. I don't
2: know how to read it because I just I don't course. know how to read Charles' dad.
1: Ugh. Uh, man, no. I turned... I, I was kind of roughly tolerant about Charles's dad <laughs> previous to the last couple pages of the chapter. But then uh, on 147 down through 148 Do you guys mind if i read this really quickly yeah um when you're a painter this is charles's father speaking in there in charles's home visiting when you're a painter he said suddenly at sunday luncheon you'll need a studio yes well there isn't a studio here there isn't even a room you could decently use as a studio i'm not going to have you painting in the gallery no i never meant to Nor will I have undraped models all over the house, nor critics with their horrible jargon. (laughs) And I don't like the smell of turpentine. I presume you intend to do the thing thoroughly and use oil paint? My father belonged to a generation which divided painters into the serious and the amateur according according as they used oil or water. I don't suppose I should do much for painting the first year. Oh, this is Charles talking. I don't suppose I should do much painting for the first year anyway i should be working at a school abroad asked my father hopefully there are some excellent schools abroad i believe it was all happening rather fast rather faster than i had intended abroad or here i should have a look around first look around abroad he said then you agree to my leaving oxford agree agree my dear boy you're 22 this is his father speaking my dear boy you're 22 20 I said, twenty-one in October. Is that all? It seems much longer. I mean, sorry. Like, uh
0: You're done, huh? You're I done go. with that
1: guy. I'm done wow. with him. I did not have the <laughs> same response. He
0: should send him abroad. Wait, wait, Angela, not how that did that that you have, response. have that
1: feeling, Angela.
2: This is a man. I mean, I'm how not saying okay, you... I'm like. I mean, I don't want to look up this guy's profile on eHarmony, okay? Like, don't don't misinterpret my affection <laughs> for the guy, right? I, mean, I don't want him to be my father or anything like that. But I guess I'm I'm I guess I'm seeing him as also another displaced person by this war. He's lost his wife, and mm. and from what i understand you know it can be very it can be very very difficult knowing how to relate to your child in a situation like that i mean perhaps he feels a lot of the same thing that this is this is your mother's son and it's too painful to be around him for whatever reason when charles and his dad are around each other it becomes a battlefield and and so i read this whole thing as one more just like you're intruding on me i just want to retreat into this fantasy world i live in where i don't have to deal with my grief or anything that's happened since my wife died mm-hmm. that's see, and his not knowing the age of Charles I think it's just his disconnect he's just, see, w- Walsh says that as he reads the books time moved in centuries oh, what a great line, I've been thinking about that it's such a good line yeah, but, a good so line. this to me just feeds into all of that he's just in a whole other universe retreating and escaping so like, he's just a victim of the war uh, and, and Charles is also a victim of the war and I don't know. I guess I guess I'm a little more so, sympathetic because I, I I just feel like Wall is showing us a whole landscape of people whose lives have just been completely messed over.
0: This to mm-hmm. me might be one of those instances where there's like the whole conversation about sympathy versus empathy com- might might come up. Um, I don't know. Maybe not. But I feel like I can. I, I do have some sympathy for him and what he's going through, but he seems to turn a corner at certain times. To where he enters the realm that is just malicious. Yeah. Um, and th- like even the way he says, you know, he asks, hopefully you're, you're going abroad, right? He's trying to, he's just, uh-huh. it's not like he's saying, go back to school, go find a job. He's trying yes. to push him as yes, far away absolutely. as he possibly can. I mean, he's trying to get him across the ocean. Um, and, you know, <laughs> he, he, then he couches it like, oh no, it's your decision but he really uh-huh. doesn't give him a decision. He's not like, you, he's not, you can stay here or you can go. He says, you should go, you should go. Those are your options, but definitely, you know, of your one option, you should definitely make the choice yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's really interesting that before he does anything else, Wa then immediately gives us a letter from Lady Marchmain expressing her... Um, desire that he do come and that, he, that Charles go come stay with them. So we get those those yes, but contrasting interactions with a You also have two parent.
2: manipulative parents, though. Lady Marchman and Charles's father. They both have what they want and they both manipulate to get it.
0: Is he manipulating, though? I mean, is he really being manipulative? He's just being... A jerk.
2: I, I think playing dumb is a form of manipulation. And so when Charles is saying, I don't have any money, and his dad is All like, right, okay, oh, okay. oh okay. how'd that happen? Or well, just don't go to the Jews for a loan. They'll, they'll, they'll stiff you. you know. Like He's yeah. playing dumb, and that's a way of, everything about him is a way of just not dealing with it. Even the saying, well, it's your choice, my boy. This is just a way of getting the responsibility of making a decision about his son's life off of him.
1: Yeah.
0: But then so then you read and then Lady Marchmain you're saying let's talk about that a little bit her her being manipulative.
2: Well, it's um, a, okay, there's a different nature it, but, to it obviously because Charles's dad is being manipulative because he just doesn't want his private universe invaded. And and her her motivation right. is she wants to do what what she thinks is right for her son.
0: Right. She's is there a, is there a line between I don't know charm and manipulation, because she is being, I mean, there, obviously there is, but she is being charming because she wants Charles to help Sebastian. But it also seems like there is a genuine interest in him, as when she says, we we got to make him a Catholic. You know, like, she seems to have taken him on as a pet, pet project, so to speak, beyond her interest in, in salvaging well, I think know, it's Sebastian. interesting that
2: Waugh uses the word charm. Okay, because this is also an enchantment. This is, you know, a spell. You put a charm on someone. You put a spell on someone. And, and, and Charles is falling under her spell, but under the spell of all of it. She's just part of it, right? And I don't think that she's... I don't think that she's bad. I don't think she's evil. I, I mean, I don't want a controlling mother making decisions for my life either, but um, I don't think she... And I'm not that kind of mother myself. God forbid, I'm like practically neglectful. I'm so on the opposite end of things. <laughs> I'm all about make your own mistakes, boy. But um, you just I say I, it all so. the time, all the time. <laughs> I can't, I've can't. i been giving my kids this talk since they were so little because I had a super controlling mother, and I saw what it did to all of her children, and I just made a decision very early on that I was never going to be that woman. So I've always told my kids, if you grow up and tell the therapist my mother neglected me and she didn't love me, just know that you know it was good intentions. <laughs> Just trying not to be controlling. I, <laughs> I did it on, premise, on purpose. So.
0: <laughs> totally.
2: Um, but uh, no, they're they're fine. <laughs> but but I so you know, she's a complicated character. And I think, I think that she does put people under her spell. So I don't think it's like deliberately manipulative. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know that there necessarily has to be a contrast between genuinely caring about Charles and also seeing an opportunity to use her influence via Charles over her son. Like in her mind, that would all be the same thing.
1: Right. It's all going through right. the we common both love good. Seba-
2: we both love Sebastian Charles. I love you. I love him. We both love him. So let's work together
1: yeah Let's work together. Yes. Hey, Angelina,
0: I just had a telegraph come in from space.
1: Um, oh my gosh! How's yeah. Graham? Well, he sent a note. I,
0: I think he's been doing some soul searching while he's been up there in the vortex because he sent a oh, note wow. here, and I, I feel like you definitely <laughs> will want to hear this one. Um, so you're just gonna have to give me a second. No laughing. Sorry. This is a serious sorry. matter, Angelina. Oh, come on, Angelina. He. Okay, it's a little longer than usual. He says, (laughs) being overcome... Guys, come on. I'm sorry, David. No,
1: it's...
0: I blame Angelina. Get in line. Gotta take take Graham's soul-searching here seriously. Yeah. Being overcome with guilt and remorse, he writes, I feel as though I must make a public apology to Angelina. I should not have insulted her so regularly or voraciously over the past two months. No matter how clever the jabs were, it was wrong for me to insinuate her voice was louder than a jackhammer, stronger than an anesthetic, and could be heard from space. I am also terribly sorry for all the scenarios I imagined involving Angelina's robust, shrill, glass-shattering voice being able to crumble pyramids, resist event horizons, and transcend space and time. I'm just so, so, so sorry. Yours, Graham Wow! But, there's there's a postscript here. But if she could be a tiny bit quieter, maybe I could get some work done.
2: I feel like Lady Marchmain may have just met her match.
1: <laughs> um, hey, do you guys mind that I piped in some, okay, a I little thought, bit of? I thought, I was, I, thought was I
2: was hearing things. I'm like, where's this coming from? This <laughs> spinning tunes over
0: there. <laughs>
1: well. Wow.
0: Okay, D- DJ Tim, DJ Tim, Tim DJ, mixing it, it
2: up right here. <laughs> Well, okay. Obviously, Tim being the magnanimous person that I am, uh, I forgive you, Graham.
1: <laughs> oh, I do, I do. Apologies. And
2: let's all just work together on this little problem we
1: have. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Lady Marchmane. Which, by the way, clo- our close readers, listeners don't know this, but when we all signed into Zencaster today, you know, we each choose our own kind of like Zencaster handle, and today... Angelina signed in as Lady Marchmain. I was just feeling
2: like I wanted to sit She's you down for role. tea and give you a book. It's like an improving book.
0: Well, Tim, yeah. would you like to tell yeah, really. everyone what your name is?
2: At least I classed it up.
1: I don't know that that's, I don't think it's, it's so pertinent important right important now, David. You're Mr. DJ. You're... <laughs> oh, that is a great point. My Zencaster handle today is Boom Shakalaka. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Keeping it classy. As I
0: don't always. get the, I don't get the pleasure of coming up with these names because I set the thing up and so it just automatically goes with the account name. So it just says Thirsty Institute. Um, but maybe I'll set it up and then come in as a guest also at some point. Just so <laughs> oh yeah, maybe you the, should. So I we know, can be like, totally confused about who's saying well, what. <laughs> um, do you think? Let's get back to Lady Marchman here because you talked about her as an enchantress. Um, casting her spell, do you think that her children are under her spell? Because it does seem like a lot of people that come in contact with her are enchanted and then, you know... eventually they're not think of her husband for example and i and i think we may be uh being a little harsh with her because there's a you know as you said there's a very complicated character there and we'll get to that over the course of the book but do you see her children like how do you see her relationship with her children is is it are they enchanted as well or are they cynical about her or how do you read that
2: i think that they are and i think sebastian is resisting it and this is and he knows her power that's part of why he doesn't want to bring charles around i think he has very conflicted feelings about her um, but the way that she is described, she's described as the kind of woman who just attracts a lot of people to her, right? He, she's got all these hangers on, as mm-hmm. Sebastian called. Yeah, she she's does. She's got a force field. And, and, um, this is, But this is a character that you meet elsewhere. I'm thinking so much about Mrs. Dalloway from uh, Virginia Woolf, if you've read that. Um, Virginia Woolf describes women like this. Um, I've been having a lot of echoes of that as as we've read these these women who just have, and it's not evil. Okay, it's just it's just a way they have of uh, putting people at ease and and making people feel comfortable and just sort of having this charm about them that draws people to them. And I think part of Sebastian's problem is how conflicted he feels about all of it. He he does love her. Mm-hmm. They don't have a bad relationship, but I think he's trying to get sorted about what exactly it is he's supposed to feel about her. Especially when you've got the divorce thrown into the mix. It's not, not even just a normal coming of age, I'm growing up and what do I think of my parents. He's got, you know, a dad saying a lot of negative things and, and making a battle out of it.
1: And It's, it's interesting that the, this real pivotal moment that happens in this chapter is Charles, excuse me. Sebastian getting drunk in front of his mother yes it, because that's what happened with her husband um, it seems like Sebastian is probably at least subconsciously um, he's he's being deliberate about being drunk in front of her and I, I just have so much sympathy is like for a faux
0: apology you mean like he, when he comes down to apologize he's just doing that so he can come down and... Well,
2: don't you think
0: he's, yeah, so you think he's coming
2: he down to make perform. a point of it's only Charles I'm apologizing to, not the rest of you? Uh,
0: yes.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah that's oh, right. Yeah.
0: Kissy, so not, yeah. He basically is like, not you. Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. So that's he it. gives
2: a total non-apology on purpose. He's, he's rubbing their nose in it. Yeah. I'm not upset
1: yeah, at I think he's rubbing how I've treated the
2: rest of you, just Charles. That's a very child thing to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is.
1: It is. And it furthers the warfare between he and his family over the kind of like neutral territory of Charles.
2: Well, no one's going to let him stay neutral. That's the whole problem, right? Yeah. Everybody wants yes, him to right, side.
1: Right. You know, I wonder if you guys, if you guys, if now is the a good time to read this passage that um, we're all kind of gravitating towards that, toward, Let's that go begins for at one thirty eight. So yeah. it seems to me like it's a real pivotal moment. It happens after the kind of drunken bout uh, between Sebastian and his family at Brideshead. And Lady Marchmain has now given Charles a book. And it's almost like... The book is almost like a um, diary-slash-biography of the Marchmain household. Um, and it's very... Well, I'll just read the passage. I, for me, this is the first moment where I see Charles not just showing curiosity about Catholicism, but actually taking a step toward it. And I wonder if you guys read it the same way. I'll just start. Mm-hmm. It's a long It's a long section. Um, do you guys want to break it up?
2: Where are you starting? Start where do it? you where? want
1: to start? Where are uh, where you starting? First full paragraph. No, sorry. Um Last full paragraph on 138. It begins, In the train to London, I read the book. Oh, we do all have the
2: same page (laughs) numbers then. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think we do. And I'm going to read to the um, end of that break. Right. That is a lot. Okay, go ahead. In the train to London, I I read the book Lady Marchmain had given me. The front piece reproduced the photograph of a young man in a grenadier uniform, and I saw plainly revealed there the origin of that grim mask which, in Brideshead, overlaid the gracious features of his father's family. This was a man of the woods and caves, a hunter, a judge of the tribal council, the repository of the harsh traditions of a people at war with their environment. Such a great line to describe the relationship of Catholicism to England. Um, Mm -hmm. A repository of the harsh traditions of a people at war with their environment. There were other illustrations in the book, snapshots of the three brothers on holiday, and each and in each I traced the same archaic lines. And remembering Lady Marchmain, starry and delicate, I could find no likeness to her in these somber men.
0: I like the way that archaic lines in each I trace these same archaic lines. That's like one of those loaded. Well lines he that comes can back have so to many that different idea meanings too, to right? It.
2: That they're archaic, old, passed away.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But she, the idea yes. that, like, the lines of a face yeah, and oh, family yeah. lines right. and just yeah. all that, yeah. all those right. different ideas that come together there.
1: She appeared seldom in the book. She was older than the eldest of them by nine years and had married and left home while they were schoolboys. between her and them stood two other sisters after the birth of the third daughter. There had been pilgrimages and pious benefactions and request and request for a son for theirs was a wide property and an ancient name male heirs had come late and when they came in a profusion which at the same time seemed to promise continuity to the line which in the tragic event ended abruptly with them the family history was typical of the Catholic squires of England from Elizabeth's reign till Victoria's they lived sequestered lives among the tenantry and kinsmen sending their sons to school abroad often marrying there intermarrying if not with a score of families like themselves, debarred from all preferment, and learning in those lost generations lessons which could still be read in the lives of the last three men of the house. The, Angelina, mm-hmm. this just ties so perfectly into what you said in the last podcast about the, like, the history of Catholicism in Anglican England you mm-hmm. know, in the last two centuries.
0: Mr. It's interesting Stan- that he actually drops the words sure lost does. generation there. I don't know if they were, co- I don't know if they were called that then. I can't remember when that phrase was coined. About that phrase Pope was him.
1: coined, David, by um, Gertrude Stein, and it's oh, that's right, of course. In, the, yeah. in that what do you call it? The um, it's a quote at the beginning of "The Sun Also Rises." Yeah, that's right, of course. We're all a yeah. lost generation. So that yeah. would have been. Roughly, pro- contemporaneous. But I think right? he's referring yeah, to the years between Elizabeth and
2: Victoria as the lost generations.
0: Well, he he, he is there, but just, I he, just yeah. even the right. I, that phrase being there oh, is, yeah, like, yeah. is evocative. Haunting. Yeah,
1: <laughs> haunting too. I'd say. <laughs> Mr. Samgrass's deft editorship had assembled and arranged a curiously homogeneous little body of writing: poetry, letters, scraps of a journal an unpublished essay or two, which all exhaled the same high-spirited, serious, chivalrous, otherworldly air, otherworldly. And the letters from their contemporaries written after their deaths, all in varying degrees of articulateness, told the same tale of men who were, in all of the full flood of academic and athletic success, of popularity and the promise of great rewards ahead, seen somehow as set apart from their fellows, garlanded victims, devoted to the sacrifice. These men must die to make a world for Hooper. They were the Aborigines, vermin by right of law, to be shot off at leisure so that things might be safe for the traveling salesman with his poly... Oh, gosh. Polygonal pince his fat <laughs> his fat wet handshake, his grinning dentures, I wondered, as the train carried me farther and farther from Lady Marchmain, whether perhaps there were not on her too the same blaze marking her and hers for destruction by other ways than war. did she see a light in the red centre of her cosy grate and hear it in the rattle of creeper on the window-pane this whisper of doom then i reached paddington and returning home found sebastian there and the sense of tragedy vanished for he was gay and free as when i first met him cordelia sent you her special cordelia sent you her special love did you have a little talk with mummy yes have you gone over to the other side the day before i would have said there aren't two sides that day i said no I'm with you, Sebastian, Contra Mundum. And that was all the conversation we'd had on the subject, then or ever.
2: All this passage is hmm. so good.
1: Those,
0: it's interesting that it ends with the idea of the two sides again, right? And like having to choose between them. And the idea, the question of whether there are two sides, and for at least that moment he decides that there are two sides, and I'm taking Sebastian, but... Another time he might have chosen somebody else. Yes, but else. see,
2: to, to come right after this passage puts a different spin on the two sides because the two sides in the, in, in the whole thing is the old right, way and right. the new way, right? And the old way right. is mm-hmm. is dead. It's passed away. It's lost. And the new way is Hooper. And we know from the beginning of the story that that, that is something to be mourned, right?
0: So is are we meant to then believe like, is he choosing in Sebastian when he makes this choice? So obviously we're getting this equation or these two sides at any rate set, set up here, as you just described, but are, in choosing Sebastian, is he meant to have chosen the new way? Oh, or is, it, do you think we're or is, or is don't, that, don't, am I just reading yeah, too I, much? Into I don't, it? I like I don't that know question. that that's
2: where Charles is in his head, but he, but he's, but he's asking the question is lady Marchmain and that whole world, part of that old world that has passed away. Um, mm-hmm. And that's part of Sebastian's struggle, of course, is who is he in, in the light of all of yeah. this? And, and I'm just going to mm-hmm. derail for just a second because I had such a strong moment when I read this and just a real epiphany. Um, because mm-hmm. what Waugh is describing here, the old world passing away and the new man that is emerging out of this, this post-war world and that being a, a, a point of grief and sorrow – this is exactly what Margaret Mitchell is mm-hmm. saying in Gone with the Wind. And what struck me, though, is that she's oh writing, and God. I never thought about this before, hmm. she's writing Gone with the Wind in between the two world wars. So what she does is she takes hmm. oh all of the same angst that she sees with Wa, right, that the world has changed and the old has passed away and who is the new man and she but she she imposes it on the Civil War South and so she tells that same story of a lost generation but she tells it through the Civil War and so what you have is the old wow. world which is the same, exactly the way Waugh describes it at the beginning right chivalry and poetry and men who cry at Thermopylae and you know men of honor and virtue right and, and, and listen I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is separate from the question of whether or not the South really was like that, okay, but just for the terms of the book, the world that she is creating, a world of virtue and honor and nobility and chivalry and goodness is represented in in Melanie and Ashley. And what ends up happening in the book, of course, is that the world changes after the war and there is no place for those people anymore. And just like Watt describes, they have to pass away for the new man to come forward. And the new man is Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. But the thing about the book... And in this, I I mean, I'm just so shocked right now how much Margaret Mitchell is tracking with Wall. Margaret Mitchell is extremely ambivalent about Scarlett O'Hara. Part of what happens in the book is you can't figure out as a reader, do I like her or not? And it's because Margaret Mitchell can't figure out Mm. if she likes her or not. Because ultimately the book raises the question, if that old world has passed away, if you have to be Scarlett O'Hara to survive in the new world, and you do, then what's the point? Maybe that's not such a good thing to be. Maybe that's just yeah. we should all just mourn that the world has turned us into Scarlet O'Hara. And I feel like Wall's doing the same thing here with those men had to die to make the world for Hooper.
0: Well, then yeah. this is what Hemingway is doing in *The Sun Also Rises* with Lady Brett Ashley, and it's what Fitzgerald's doing in the *Great Gatsby* with mm-hmm. um, with uh, what is the what who's the the name? What's the name of the, the female character that, that Gatsby's in love oh,
1: with? Oh, right, Daisy. Um,
0: Daisy, Daisy Buchanan. Uh, it's the same thing with them. I mean, it's the same thing with Gatsby too. Like if you have to, if you have to serve, if the only way to survive or to get ahead or let's just say survive is to be those characters, then what's the point? It's the exact same question that's being yes, asked in yes. all of books. And see, I never
2: before this moment would have the same put time. Gone with the Wind in that same category. But I see now that she's taking all of that lost generation angst and just putting it in the Civil War setting.
1: That's a great observation, Angelina. I'd have never seen that. I, I don't know Gone with the Wind clearly as well as you do, but that's just a would, great overlay.
0: Would you say, Angelina, that that sense of enchantment is there with, with uh, Scarlet O'Hara? With that
2: O'Hara? world, yes.
0: But with that, I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, the idea of oh, these Oh, the does Scarlet O'Hara have the ability because, to enchant you know, people? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because you get the same thing. I mean, these other books I just mentioned, Gatsby and Daisy Buchanan are incredibly yes. yeah. enchanting, especially to Nick Carraway. And, in, and, and Lady Look, Brett Ashley is incredibly line, enchanting to the main character. The opening line of Gone of with Rises. the Wind
2: is, Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom noticed when in her presence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great opening line.
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think we may be, you know, overlooking the fact that almost every great character in a book is in some way enchanting. Like, that's just the nature of the best characters, whether mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're even evil characters who, ha- there's something enchanting about them that make them, you know, a good character. Um, Anna Karenina. But, like, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, she's a classic example for
1: fantastically sure. Fantastically
0: charming. I mean, maybe not Roskolnikov. He's not very enchanting. But, um, but, uh, What was I gonna say? There's something about. There's something about those characters and the relationship with the world that they live in, that make these characters, um, like that, make that enchantment a little harrowing, like like or just haunting, maybe.
1: Say more about that, David. There's something about this world that makes those characters more harrowing.
0: Well, I guess maybe that their enchantment, the sense that they, the reason that they that they are so enchanting, I think, like the reason that Jay Gatsby is enchanting for Nick Carraway and for and and like the legend of Jay Gatsby is enchanting, has so much to do with the world that he has well, there's kind something of risen larger up into than life that yeah. all of those characters. World. Right. Well, and even Lady Brett Ashley in um, The Sun Also Rises. Um,
1: yes. Oh, she's. That's her name. Thoroughly charming. That's her name. Um,
0: yeah, and she she's thoroughly charming, but in a way that is like so. Um, it's it's driven by it's that that enchantment and her persona are born out of the world that she lives in and the experiences yep. that she's had because of the way the world is. It's the same thing, you know. You get it, and you know if you if you read a story of the '60s, a character, these characters are are created out of the turmoil of the late 60s say mm-hmm. and like there's an mm-hmm. enchantment about their, their ability to survive in that world and so we look at them and we say you know if, if there's an, like Nick Carraway is trying to survive in the great Gatsby and so he looks at Jay Gatsby and he sees Jay Gatsby surviving and even thriving in a sense and yes. he's ha- like there's a lot that's ha- that, that is haunting Jay Gatsby but his ability to survive and thrive is enchanting to Nick Carraway and so he, he follows him right Right, he, you know, he 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 follows him until he can't anymore. Basically, until he sees the flaws, um, and you know, like in *The Sun Also Rises*, the main character whose name is for, I'm forgetting right now, he can't Jake. stop thinking. Of, yeah, he can't stop thinking about Brett Ashley, Lady Brett uh-huh. Ashley. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, when someone, when you're living in a time of turmoil, and people have this magnetism about them that can enchant you. That makes them stand apart I think you know it, that makes them very attractive because there's a sense that in, in the midst of all this turmoil in the midst of all this chaos I can survive right and it's what leads Charles to Sebastian at first mm-hmm. um, and, then, and, then the question, and then it leads him on to all these other characters and the question is it's almost like who does Sebastian have Sebastian's yeah, enchanting to Charles say, but who does Sebastian have enchanting. to look at that is enchanting to him who can sebastian follow cuz it doesn't seem like anybody who's who who's bright who like whose lights are bright enough to cut to for for sebastian that's to very say true. i want to be like that's that that's
2: very person. true that's part of yes. why he's wandering yeah. around right his father could and should be the person who models for him what it means to be a man in the world and isn't there
0: he has this respect for his older brother but like that relationship seems you know frayed
1: strained
0: <laughs> yeah and then, like he keeps getting, you know, his mother's right, trying to find that person for him, right? Like, there's the, tutor. There's the priest. Then there's the, um, the mm-hmm. tutor. And the, who's the who's who is he gonna get sent away to if he after that oh, after yeah. the, the term. Bell? Yeah, yeah. So it seems like they're just rushing one person after another to try to you know to try to give him someone to follow and imitate and be be. Uh, Right. I don't know. Changed by. Be molded you just like, by. You, know, yes, right. you send, you send oh, your troubled kids the, to someone the, the to be thing changed by. is the thing about by, Sebastian,
2: right? right? Like, it, there's no one. So it's not that he's gotten in with the wrong crowd and has rejected his family. There's no one for him to follow. He doesn't. So the, the foil to that would be Rex. But right. Sebastian is not enchanted by Rex. Mm-hmm. I love the description of Rex as efficient. He you know, he's the modern man. He, he's efficient. Yeah. He gets things. Mm-hmm. He See, mm-hmm. the, so they get into this. Exactly. He's from exactly. North America, and, by and, the way. and I don't think that that is uh, not accidental not at thing. all, right? He's the new man, and so that Sebastian is. and Charles get yeah. into trouble, and they are so in over their heads, and they don't know how to navigate this new world. And Rex just knows. He's just one of those guys who knows how to navigate the world. But he's Rex. He's not enchanting. He he's Hooper. This is sad that this is the new man of the world. But it's also true that Sebastian cannot yeah. function. They're,
0: they're, but there's something enchanting about him to yes, Julia. But
2: that's puzzling to me.
1: <laughs> that is. That well, would right. be, we, haven't gotten, right. we haven't gotten far. You have to keep reading that, but. That would be a really fun relationship to explore. Like,
2: well, she's not how gonna be without work. daddy issues no, too, of course.
1: Well,
0: I, I was literally just gonna say there's a daddy issue thing going yeah. on there and like a man who can like who's buttoned up, can, can kind of take care of things, who's not who can like solve yeah. The problems of drunkards. Yes. Whereas yeah. her, her father yeah. was the drunkard. You know, all those things are going to sort of come together. So if the old man failed her, if the old context, the old world failed her, then naturally uh, yes, she's going to look for the new world. Mm-hmm. And so she turns to Rex.
1: I didn't think this. I mean, I'm so glad, Angelina, that you brought up the kind of like overlay with Gone with the Wind. It makes me think also we talked about Walker Percy, uh, David Nyer. Or Walker Percy fans. I it can't remember. I've read Angelina, a whole lot are. of Walker Percy. Um, but it's a similar, he, he's dealing with very similar issues. And f- there's the death of this old way. And it's happening kind of later because it's the American South that it's happening in, but there's this death of this old way and this old way of being a man. And for Walker Percy, I mean, it was, he's writing novels to solve a highly personal issue. So Walker Percy, a Catholic living in the South in the middle part of the 20th century, and Walker Percy's grandfather and father were both highly esteemed, I think they were both lawyers, very esteemed in their communities, classic Southern gentlemen not only just classic Southern gentlemen, but they were classic Southern gentlemen that fought on behalf of African Americans during kind of like proto and civil rights movements, and both of them committed suicide. And for Walker Percy, he his novels are almost an exploration of figuring out why did my father and grandfather commit suicide, and am I going to fall prey to the same thing that claimed them He's always wrestling in his books with suicide, suicidal thoughts. And his – what he kind of discovers is that what has killed – what he believes has killed his father and grandfather is that this old pattern of life had died away. And these two men were trying to retain those old practices – but those old practices could not be maintained in solitary confinement, as it were. They could only be practiced when they were part of, kind of like a broader community practice. And so for, for Percy, when he starts reading Soren Kierkegaard and Jean Paul Sartre and Dostoevsky on, in a hospital bed, he sees this kind of Christian existentialism as the way that he will not end up committing suicide like his father and grandfather. But it's it's this funny thing, because he esteems this old way of being that he saw in his father and grandfather. Yet at the same time, recognizing that world is disintegrating rapidly, and now I have to make new choices. I've got to figure this out.
0: In in Percy, and I think in a lot of the the fiction that we've been referencing, this the, between the World Wars, um, it, it seems like a lot of these. I it seems like the idea of clinging to the old way of life is in itself a sort of suicidal act like if mm. you cling to it too hard you can't you can't survive and thrive yes you have yes. to like look at it and you have to like recognize the what value is there because and, and then cling to that bit but then be yes. willing to let go of the parts that are not you can't just because something is old doesn't mean that it's inherently worth clinging to yeah um, and it seems like you know, you get that in um, in uh, in Gatsby in particular, and in Hemingway. I mean, Hemingway, there's right, another guy right. who committed suicide. But if we just, yeah.
2: if, we, if we fast forward the conversation yeah, like, to the present day, then it's fascinating how all of these ideas have played mm-hmm. out, right? So we're describing all these writers in different parts of the world, different genders, um, you know, whole nine yards, all seeing the same thing, mm-hmm. right? That the old way is passing away, that the, and, and that people mm-hmm. who are clinging to that are going to pass away with it, because there's no room in the new world for that, and yet they're all mourning that. They're all mourning the death of that. And so here we are, 2017, just right. standing in the wreckage of that right the old way has passed away and we have come to discover as a culture I mean not everybody perhaps but a large part of the culture has realized the modern man this is an untenable situation right it might have it might have kept us alive during the post-war years but look look at the mess and so it's fascinating to me as a culture that we are we are looking back to the old ways I mean the whole classical education resurgence is evidence of that right of people saying enough with the modern we mm-hmm. lost something good when the old world passed away and we're all and we're mm-hmm. all we're all doing exactly what you're describing Dave we're all trying to figure out I mean we're not going to be ancient Greeks right I mean I'm not giving up my air conditioning I'm not being a medieval but, mm-hmm. but what goodness was <laughs> lost and how do we carry right. that over and how do we apply right. it in the world that we're living in but just this intense sense that something good has passed away and we've got to recover it I feel like that's where we are in the conversation mm. now I think Wendell Berry speaks to a lot of that and I
1: agree.
2: Um, you know, what we're doing here right now speaks to that. The fact that people want to talk about literature. I, I am amazed. Look, I mean, I've told this story before, but I was in graduate school, and I, the, the, the graduate English students would not read the books. <laughs> and it's just amazing to me that there are people who are like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm picking up this book, and, you know, doggone it, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going I'm to wrestle with this. It's just, it's just fascinating to me. Huh. And encouraging, deeply, deeply encouraging.
0: You know, uh, in this passage that Tim just read, Charles refers to the, all this stuff that he's ah. talking about as a whisper of doom. Yes. And he wonders if Lady Marchmain sees it, right? Yeah. And, you know, speaking of haunting, <laughs> a whisper of doom is about as haunting as it gets. Um, yeah. And that that seems like you know, that's towards the end of this chapter. And it seems like oh, that's yeah, going to yeah, set yeah. up the rest of our our reading. We've got all these relationships. And the reason I wanted to bring up the characters is is because as these, as we've been, have, we kind of have all our main characters now. And so these relationships are going to be kind of, they're going to be unfolding and they're going to be flowering and growing and changing. And, um, people are going to continue to grow up and get older. Everybody from Sebastian and Charles to, to Cordelia, the youngest sister. Um, and all, you know, hovering over all of that is this, this question of this whisper of doom, um, and so I think that might be, you know, we've been going over an hour and 20 minutes, so that might be a good place to stop. But just kind of this idea that this whisper of doom is hovering over everything. Yeah. And so where where is Sebastian happen? as we move into chapter six, uh, which we'll talk about next. Any final thoughts before we before we conclude here?
1: These last two podcasts for me have been among the most enjoyable I was going to say
2: something similar I really really enjoy what we're unpacking here these are these are aesthetics and and the changing world after the war is b- deep deeply uh, fascinating yeah. and important issues in my mind so I'm so glad that we're able to talk about them but you know you you made the point David about the, you know the archaic line and all the double meanings of that and that's the more we've talked the more that I've thought about that you know because the brothers right it was literally the end of the line when they died, the line was dense all the right, implications right, yeah, yeah. of that, you know, everything that they represent died with them. And Lady Marchmain is part of that world and will she survive? Can can she survive?
0: Yes. Yeah. And it's not like the three, there was one yes. son, right? It was one son of the child of one son, you know, there are three Three of them. and how many families yes. did that happen and the, to? And the way that he World set it, it up, with like, there you know, was this Europe, fear
2: that there would be no male heir, and then they had three, and surely this has secured the line, because historically, you know, you have the heir and the spare. So they had an heir and two spares; they were set. But what they couldn't anticipate was World War One, and so I mean, it just. All the meaning there. Yeah. All the meaning yeah, the there for how would... disruptive that was to everything that people took comfort in, for everything that gave them stability. An air, a spare, and a spare. That was your stability for the line. Boom, gone.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, Great stuff, I'm... you guys.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so this is what's going to happen. We actually are going to be taking... For us, it's going to be a week off. For those of you who are listening, it's hopefully only going to be about 10 days. Uh, We're going to push. We posted this week's episode on a Wednesday. It really ended up we had some problems with the file, so it ended up being Thursday. But we're going to post this this next episode probably on Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. So it'll be a day or so behind by the time you've listened to this. And then we're going to take that week off. And so then we'll come back the next week and record. So there might be about 10 days between episodes for you. Um, but we need to, between the Summer Institute and graduation that Tim's doing at uh, Gutenberg and the many, many projects I'm working on right now, we just need, we need a few days to kind of catch up.
1: And are um, you getting the impression, David, that our listeners are kind of wanting a little time to catch up also?
0: I don't know. It sounds like they'd be okay <laughs> if we recorded every day.
2: The truth is we could. <laughs> we could probably go sentence by sentence through a book. And
0: <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. We could. Micro we might lose um, all of
2: our listeners, but we could definitely do well,
0: it. Right. <laughs> it is called close reads, right? Um, well, yeah. Thank you to everyone who's been listening and commenting and uh, sending in, you know, Facebook messages and emails and and all that. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't done so yet, we would appreciate it if you would um, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. We of course do have the the general Cersei feed. We can get all of our shows, or you can just subscribe to the close reads feed. Uh, don't forget about Tim's classes with with uh, the Schola uh, Academy with Classical Academic Press. If you want to learn more about that, head over to ScholaeAcademy.com. That's S C H O L E Academy.com. And I think your I think your mug shot's there on the front page, Tim, with with all I your think classes. It is. So yeah, so you can check that out there. And of course, thanks to Iew for sponsoring the podcast this this month, and they actually sponsored a seat at our oh, summer nice. institute. Uh, uh, which is coming up? They sponsored a seat for wow. a couple. Wow! Um, cool. So, uh, yeah, so uh, that was for oh, a Close yeah. Read, Close Read's listeners. So that's where that, that. that scholarship came in. So thanks to them, thanks to them for making that happen. Yeah, we got. That was. You know, I'm never doing that again because that's that's. Oh. It kind of makes me feel bad because we get all these we get all these great submissions and then I have to choose one and then there's yeah. all these people. Who I have to say sorry to, just and then Grant I just do it. feel he terrible. He has no problem so, being the bad guy. you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true, but he just Abandons then he just juts off into space us. and doesn't have to deal with it. And really, yeah. let me just say,
2: we're here at the end. Put in uh, my plug. This is going to be my third time going to the literary retreat, and if you guys ever get a chance, you absolutely should go. It's a fantastic week of uh closely reading a book and, and just being with like minded people. It's a it's a fantastic week.
0: Yeah. People were saying, you know, we want a close to reads conference, which I'm all for if we can make it happen, if you know if the numbers are there and we can we can financially make it work. But the funny thing is we're all in the <laughs> office, we're like, guys, we do this already. This is called the Cersei Summer Institute. We spend a whole week reading oh, a book yeah. in the mountains with really good food for five days. I mean I don't know it's pretty much what we already do so yeah. you know feel free to join us for that i i don't know exactly what we're going to do next year which book we've been doing the uh the, the epic poems but there's Ooh. talk of a of a possible shakespeare week so um one of these years we'll probably do hamlet um vaguely vaguely yeah it's, yeah yeah he's a I, don't know. I heard it's not very good um anyway yeah <laughs> so uh yeah thanks to everyone who's been listening um for Tim Macintosh and Angelina Stanford, and for Spaced Graham, who's out. still in space somewhere, apologizing for things I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. But uh, f- yeah, for everyone here at Cersei, uh, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network, and we'll talk to you next time.